Hello, this is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, supported by UBS. Today's episode is kind of meta, because I'm interviewing the art world's most popular podcasting duo, Russell Tovey and Robert Diamant of TalkArt, which launched in 2018. Tovey had become famous as an actor, while Diamant was a pop musician before becoming a gallerist. The two of them came to podcasting via art collecting. In fact, they first met at a Tracy Emin show, to which they both had donated works. Their podcast has been distinguished by its wide range of guests, including dozens of artists, but also the musicians Tom York, Michael Stipe, and Maxwell, the screenwriter Lena Dunham, and the actor Pierce Brosnan. But what makes talk art really distinctive is the joyous way with which Russell and Robert talk about art. Putting aside pretension, they treat the art world as a place filled with joy and inspiration. Russell and Robert are, as you're about to hear, unrepentant art world fanboys. The topics we discuss include their close friend Tracy Emin, diversity in the art world, interviews going sideways, and the need to normalize not knowing everything. I hope you'll enjoy this fast-moving, loose-jointed conversation as much as I enjoyed being part of it. If you do, please remember to review and favorite us wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm here with Russell Tovey and Robert Diamant from TalkArt, and I'm going to start with the question that they always ask each other, which is, how are you guys doing today? We're in a very <laughs> strange post-pandemic mid-European war situation. The art world is in some ways coming back to life and in other ways still trying to figure out where it's at. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm Robert. Hello, everyone. I'm in Margate in Kent because we moved out here in 2019. I've been feeling quite somber, actually. We recently interviewed a British war photographer called Mark Neville, who's been out in Ukraine since 2015, pretty much documenting the culture there, the rich tapestry of life. We did an interview with him. And it, ever since we did that interview a few weeks ago, like it's put me in such a strange mood and it kind of makes you question everything you're doing in your life. But the one thing that it made me realise is how lucky I am to be working with artists because I think even just sitting in my office at work surrounded by art, I don't know, it brings me hope and it just reminds me that maybe there is another side to it eventually. Just really, really hope peace will come. It's been really heartening to see artists come together as well to fundraise and to do everything they can to try and help people in that situation at the moment in the war. Russell, how are you and, and where are you today? Hi, I'm Russell. Hi, Mark. I'm in London. I think I second Rob really in how I am. I fluctuate between hopeful and hopeless, but constantly inspired by how much artists and the art world rallies, especially during the pandemic, seeing what came out of art, how culture adapted, how it didn't stay still how it didn't wait for whatever it was to blow over and go back to what it was before. It was consistently adapting and that really inspired me. And that also inspired us because when we went into lockdown, we were home and it was like, well, what can we do? The best thing we can do is connect to figures in culture, to artists, to famous people that people are looking towards for a reference point of how to navigate what we were all experiencing. So we kind of went into overdrive and we worked out how to recall talk art online remotely with everybody wherever they were in the world. And it just changed everything. We've always said, if you want to know the state of the world, 
look at the artists, look at the contemporary artists, don't look at the politicians and their propaganda, the artists are the people that are telling us the state of the world. So it was a total privilege to deep dive into the psyche of contemporary art at the pandemic time. It's interesting because in essence, this podcast is an outgrowth of the Zoom sessions that Art Basel did similarly during the pandemic as a way to keep the art world connected and keep us connected with the art world. And I want to go a little bit into the backstory. And I'll start with Robert. Like so many people in the visual arts world, you started another part of culture, which was music. And I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about your musical history and how it led to your coming into the art world. Yeah, so I started playing piano at the age of four. <laughs> I did classical piano until I was like four till 12. And I was really, really good at playing piano. And I actually hated it and I hated rehearsing and I hated classical music pretty much. But because I was good at it, everyone encouraged me to do it all the time. And then when I was 13, my brother died from ecstasy, the club drug, and he died in a nightclub in Windsor in England. Overnight, the whole of my family life, which had been quite idyllic. I grew up in Berkshire by the river. It was quite a beautiful life, countryside, quite middle class, quiet, normal life in a way. Well, normal <laughs> for me anyway. And then he died and then suddenly everything changed. And the day after he died, I wrote my first song on the piano. I'd been listening to Tori Amos and I was probably really young to be listening to her music because I was only 13. But I remember just getting really inspired by her. And then I discovered Kate Bush and I was a big Madonna fan and Prince fan when I was growing up. I was a super pop kid. All I did was listen to pop music, tape the radio, do fake interviews with me interviewing Madonna or Kylie Minogue, but I would play them. <laughs> so I would play the guest. Um, I just loved all ideas of like popular culture and smash hits and all that kind of stuff. And then I ended up making a record with a producer called Youth and I was put into this very indie alternative space when I was about 18, 19, 20. And I made this whole album that never actually got released. And it took me such a long time to be able to actually find my own voice. And then by the time I was 23, 24, I did a band called Tempo Shark, which was much more pop. I was working with the producers of Madonna and Bjork and Britney Spears. And we'd made these pop records. I did two albums. I toured the world. I was mainly in America. And that's when I met Russell because I started collecting art. In every city I would go to in America, I would make sure my management would book in slots to go to museums. And I was reading every book you can imagine from art history on the tour bus. And it began to be really irritating for all of my work colleagues because they were all just like, he only cares about art. And then I met Russ through Tracy Emin because we were both collecting her drawings. And then it led to the new life where I became a gallerist. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I met Maureen Paley in East London and I went to her space when I was about 22, I think. And there was something about her gallery in particular that was so magical for me. I remember like walking in there and I felt like I was at home. I wanted that to be my life. And then I met Carl Friedman through Tatiana Echeverry Fernandez and Michael Fullerton, two artists. And then Tracy obviously used to go out with Carl, so she also knew him. And she was really keen for me to work with him. But it took about I don't know, like a one and a half year, two year period of me hanging out with Carl before he ever took me seriously or before he kind of realised that we could actually work together. I've been there 12 years now working with Carl and um, I also help run his print business, Counter Editions. It's been an amazing journey together because we are so different. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because for those of you who don't know the geography of London who are listening, this is very much an East End story. Maureen, Carl, Tracy, etc. And we'll come back to Tracy because she seems to be a running theme. If I understand correctly, the two of you met at a Tracy Ammon dinner. That's correct. I did a movie called The History Boys. We did a play, The History Boys, and then the film gave me a bit of cash, a little wadge of cash, and I wanted to invest it in a Tracy Ammon drawer. And I remember I went to White Cube when it used to be a Hoxton Square East London story, 
And I was taken through the offices at the back and I felt like someone at any point was going to tap me on the shoulder and be like, you're not allowed in here. It felt like I'd gone like the Wizard of Oz. I'd gone behind the scenes, behind the curtain. And I was taken in this office and all these drawings were there. And I chose a drawing I loved that I'd seen on a PDF that emailed to me. And we settled on a prize and I was really excited. Anyway, so I became friends with Tracy because I met her at the Southbank Show Awards, which is a cultural awards show here. And the History Boys was nominated. Tracy was on another table and I'd met her at the Queen's Jubilee. She'd had a street party on her street in East London, Fournier Street. I was walking past with friends. She was sweeping up and I went up to her and I just said, look, I'm a massive fan. Something about her work really affected me. When I was 16, the YBA movement had a visceral effect on me growing up and what the world could be and understanding suddenly what the word contemporary meant. So when she was sat at the table next to me, I thought I need to have a glass of champagne with Tracy Emin at least. Anyway, we got very drunk together and I escorted her to various parties in taxis around Soho and I was just buzzing. The next day she texts me and says, it's nice to meet you, Pokey. Let's do it again. She called me Pokey because if anyone knows me, they look at a picture of me, my ears poke out. That's been her nickname for me since. Anyway, so that's the friendship sort of abridged. I was invited to a retrospective in Edinburgh. And I turned up at the show and this woman came up to me and went, hi, you're Tracy's youngest collector. I said, yeah, I am. She went, thank you so much for loaning your works to the show. I went, I haven't loaned any works. She went, oh, you're not Tracy's youngest collector. I said, well, I assumed I was Tracy's youngest collector. Who's Tracy's youngest (laughs) collector? And they went, someone's loaned two works to the exhibition. I was like, who the hell is this? And then they'd (laughs) sat sat next to each other. To begin with, I was a bit like, well, who are you? Well, who are you? Well, I'm Tracy's youngest collector. Well, I'm Tracy's youngest collector. Anyway, then we had like a Tracy off and we started to bond over the titles of her works, of her drawings, which is such a nuanced Niche. niche side of an artist's practice. At that point, you know, titles are very important to Tracy as they are to many artists. But for young collectors like us in our early 20s to know offhand so many titles to the drawings and recognise the images was kind of rare. I don't think there's anyone else in the world that I'd be able to connect to on that level. And we sat no, next to each other. also, Russ, at that point, they weren't even published. It wasn't like there was the book yeah. yet of all her no. drawings. That came out like five years later or something. Yeah. We, we actually had been to the archives of White Cube and sat on their computers looking at drawings. We were complete nerds. Complete and, um, nerds. I think that's actually probably the template of what talk art ended up being because both of us have this encyclopedic kind of fascination with a the life story of artists and b every single last detail of their work and often things that aren't the big things like the smaller elements of their work like drawings or what they make at their kitchen table mm-hmm. that kind of thing and now a brief word from our partners at ubs From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses, and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at UBS.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. Taking a step back into the whole collecting thing, Russell, it was interesting when I was doing the research for the show, I came across something which didn't surprise me at all because I don't know very many true collectors 
who only collect one thing. And supposedly, as a child, you collected fossils and minerals and this kind of thing. Was that your first collection? Yes. For my eighth birthday, my parents said, what do you want to do? All my friends were going to like Burger King or having like a, a party in a wimpy we have here was a burger bar. And I said, I want to go to the annual Rock and Mineral Society convention, which was a room full of very grey people, all over 60, talking about these agates and geodes and trilobites and all these fossils that they'd, they'd hacked off of rocks in like Latin America and then brought to this community centre in Essex, where I was. And I was sat there next to my parents, I enthralled, obsessed, loving it, talking to everyone. And they were like, what have we produced? Where have you come from? But I had this, I've always had this absolute obsession with, if I'm enthusiastic about something, then I need to know everything. I need to do everything. One of our phrases is never apologize for enthusiasm. And that's something that I've been instilled with by my parents is that whatever I've been enthusiastic for, it's like, go for it. Never apologize for it. So I have had this thing of having to have stuff around me. I would set things up in my bedroom and little cabinets and then all the kids from up the road or my mates from up the road would come round and I would do like a little curatorial tour of my bedroom with like this little things from here, this fossil's from there, this little action figure is from the 70s from a show that was on TV before we were born. I had such an eclectic, eccentric obsession with acquiring and protecting and showing off stuff. Later that transformed into art collecting, but in between you became an actor. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, I started acting when I was 11. I saw a movie called Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams, and I had been doing gymnastics at the time. My brother was doing jazz street dance at this, again, another community centre in Essex, and I was doing gymnastics. And there was a TV show here called Grange Hill, which is about a high school, a very kind of gritty version of a, a high school here and it's like a soap drama for kids and there was a guy there who had been brought in because he was a friend of the woman who run the gymnastics club and we all had pictures with this guy because he was on Grange Hill and I remember thinking how am I able to stand here with you and you're on TV it doesn't make sense to me and I said to him how would you doing he said I went to stage school stage school and then I said to my mum I want to go to stage school I want to be an actor I suddenly saw that there was a possibility in front of me with this actor stood there that we were having these kind of poses with. My parents wouldn't let me go to stage school. I think my dad was worried about me not getting a proper education and it might have been a fad of wanting to just be an actor. So I started going to drama clubs and in the drama club I joined, the woman who ran it started a kid's agency and within a week we were on like soap operas in the background and serial TV and then I started getting auditions for things and kids TV shows and adverts and episodes of stuff and getting them. But when I was 18, I got a play at a theatre called Chichester Festival Theatre. And I think theatre was the thing that has incrementally changed my life. Every time I've done a play, it's moved me and taken me somewhere else in the world, taken me somewhere else personally, taken me somewhere else career-wise. And I've always followed plays. And then to coincide with that, like I said, when I got the History Boys money is I started to see that every time I got an acting job, I would then see the fee as something that I could then funnel back into buying art. It was like a feeding system. So it was like these rewards for the job that I did. I've said this, that an authentic art collection is basically a self-portrait. 
is basically a diary. So I can look around my collection and be like, oh, that's when I was on Broadway doing that play. That's when I did that film. That's when I did that voiceover. That's when I met that actor and that story. Then you become friends with artists and then they introduce you to other artists and it's become an absolute polyamorous relationship. I used to be in like a relationship with acting and I had this kind of side chick that I would like go to. And now I'm in this thruple with art and acting and now writing and now podcasting. So it's very kind of, they all benefit and nourish and encourage and amplify every other side. We'll come back to your polyculturalism in a moment, (laughs) but I'm curious, you see your collection as a self-portrait. Do you, when you go to people's homes, look around and try to read them based upon what they have hanging on their walls? Yeah, I mean, but I don't do it in like a obnoxious way. It's easy to pop psychoanalyze someone by what they have on their walls and what they have in their bookshelves. And isn't it Fran Leibovitch says, if you go to someone's house and they haven't got books, don't fuck them. It completely <laughs> is it. Fran Leibovitch says. That? I thought it was John Waters, but I oh, mean, maybe it's, it's John Waters. Yeah, it's John, John Waters. Waters. It's yeah. someone like someone case, culturally it's, it's a sentiment fantastic. we can all stand behind, right? Yes. <laughs> you can pop psychoanalyze an individual by the things that they have in their house. And I like this idea that people say that you shouldn't have anything that isn't beautiful or or sparks joy in a condo way of living. That absolutely is something that I live by. Everything that I bring into my home that I want to live with, it has to give me a kind of spark of joy. And my art collection is something that brings me daily joy and something that as talk art, we absolutely encourage people to live with images, even if you can't afford art, Images of artworks, like posters, magnets, postcards that have excited you and sparked joy. Have them around you daily because it does actually, make a difference. Actually, I think there's different kinds of collectors as well. Obviously, in the art world, you have people that buy for investment or they buy because they just want to decorate their homes. But for me, the people that have inspired me the most around the world are the ones that a bit like what Russell's talking about, the way that they kind of really engage with the artist and often the ones that are championing new artists. Because I think because Russell and I have both been creatives, like he's an actor, I was a musician, you're kind of really grateful for anyone that will help support your dream or believe in you enough to help you continue your work. So I think maybe that's where we both come from. And I know that Russ, one of our guests on Talk Art was Sir Elton John, and I think he's been someone who consistently has supported the new ideas. And not just photography, because obviously he's best known for his photography collection. But I think, you know, he has an extraordinary dedication to new ideas, to new art, to new music. And I love people like that. I love it because I really do think that art can actually add something to your life. If you're feeling like you're not part of the art world yet, it's so easy to get part of it because all you need to do is go and meet the artist. And once you meet the artist, it'll be a whole new addition to your life. It's really exciting. I think it's that idea of patronage that excites me when you collect the emerging artist. I have a few friends who have got way too much money and they say to me, I'm going to buy this artwork and it's stupid money. And they're like, should I buy it? And I'm like, if you want to, but that money... I could tell you some incredible young emerging artists that that will change their life. Yeah, I mean, I have to say from a personal perspective, I share that sentiment because I think one of the greatest aspects of my time at Art Basel has been watching galleries who were really unknown or known only within their city evolve. And I think the impact that an art fair, whether it's ours or other organizations, can have in terms of really putting an artist, a gallery on the global scene and transforming, literally transforming their lives in the course of an afternoon is enormous. 
It's interesting, you know, when you talk about collections, I think we've all had the same experience of going into a home and seeing walls full of works which are completely undebatable. They're artists from the canon, they're artists everybody knows, the work is of high quality. And yet there's this icy perfection to it, because for me, what makes a collection interesting is the debatable parts of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think there's nothing more exciting than connecting with other collectors or art enthusiasts about what they're looking at, what they're seeing, who we should be seeing. And especially when you talk to other artists, there feels like such a unity we're seeing now within art kind of cruise is that they move together as they always have in movements historically yeah if you want to find out where the great art is go and ask artists don't actually go and ask other people it's usually artists Mm. is where you'll find the kind of exciting new talent and as a gallerist that's definitely what i do i talk to artists of all generations because it's really interesting hearing the things that they're inspired by or what books they're reading that's where the gold is (laughs) yeah you need to find your own taste That's the advice as well, is that for so long, when you're starting to spend money, you look to other collectors who may have an art advisor on their payroll and you think, well, they know what they're doing. They must be doing it correctly. I'm going to collect what they're collecting. And you end up acquiring works which are all very lovely, but they don't spark joy. When you start to work out what it is you're into and follow that, that changes everything. And for me, when I suddenly stopped looking around and went, no, this is what I'm into. This is what I'm going to follow. As an actor, I've always been drawn to the figure. And for so long when I started, everyone was like, nobody's collecting the figure. Painting's dead. Portraiture's over. Don't bother doing that. It's it's a waste of money. You should be doing really kind of minimal work, hard-edged stuff with chrome in. That's what you should be collecting. And I remember feeling like, oh, that doesn't make me that happy, but okay, because I'm spending money and I don't want to make a mistake. But the mistake was not following what I liked. And actually, a a reference is what Rob's company's got. And this isn't just a plug, but it is amazing. And again, this is what brought me and Rob together as collectors is Counter Editions, which Carl Freeman set up. I say to people, right, you don't know what you like. Go on Counter Editions, look at all the works, and then come back to me and say, oh, I like this photographer. Oh, I like this sculpture. Oh, I like this painting. Because there is so many amazing artists on Counter Editions, international artists, artists of the canon, There's emerging artists on there and you'll be able to go on there and go, I like this, I like this, I like this. It's an amazing resource for working out And I think art's really helped both of us to find our own voices as well. And I think that's what it can do for you in a sense. If you start collecting, you can trust your subconscious as well because sometimes you can't logically or consciously understand what it is you like or who you are. It's just like an expression. It's a bit like if you were to make a drawing, you might show a side of yourself that you're not consciously thinking about. And I think collecting's the same. And and I think sometimes it's just have the confidence to trust your own taste. Because out of that, I've had works that I've bought where six months later, I'm like, why did I buy it? And then six years later, it's my favourite work in the whole collection. And you kind of fall in and out of love with artwork sometimes. And I used to feel so guilty that I'd spent £5,000 buying something that I then just thought was like really, really bad. And then six years later, it's the best thing you ever bought. And you're so lucky you bought it because you love it so much. And I think definitely you just have to trust yourself, which is a hard thing to do in any industry or any life situation. But that's a thing that art's brought for us as a kind of strength and that we're all right and we can um, contribute to the world somehow. You met in 2008. And if I'm not mistaken, in 2018, you launched the Talk Art podcast. What happened? There was obviously 10 years of friendship and collecting together. And then, Robert, you went to go work for a gallery, I guess, shortly after you met. 
But I'm curious, you know, what compelled you to launch the podcast? First thing was, is that we were invited, Rob was invited to do a podcast to talk about art collecting and he brought me along. It wasn't actually that, babe. It was called Thought Starters and it was done at White City and they actually invited me with a guest and I didn't know they'd invited a guest. I had to invite a guest. And then like Uh, the day before I was recording uh, it, they said, who are you bringing? You haven't told us. And I was like, what do you mean? I didn't know. I thought I was just talking about counter editions. And then I called Russ and was like, are you in town? Because you actually bought counter editions since the beginning. Yeah, loads. loads. Can you come and talk about it? So he then came with me down to Shepherd's Bush and we did this interview and they were meant to be interviewing us and they didn't get a word in edgeways. So we did it and then our mums listened to it and they said, that is the most we've learned about you two and what this whole art world thing is than we have by ever talking to you or going around galleries with you or listening to you tell your stories ever. You need to do this. So I said to Rob, well, why don't we just start a podcast? And he was like, what's that? I said, well, we just sort of create something and it'd be like a weekly thing where me and you check in with each other. We put it out there and we just basically review shows or things we've seen or funny art world stories. And he was like, okay. And Rob said he felt a bit of imposter syndrome, like, what the hell are we doing? Who are we to do this? Because everything we'd ever watched, a lot, well, majority of things we've watched and seen and followed have been very reverential, have been very kind of academic, highly intellectualized, quite inaccessible, I guess, when you're listening to people talk about art. And we wanted to create something that brought some enthusiasm and excitement and made people feel that art can be fun. We're not academic art world people. I come from Essex working class family. Rob wasn't brought up on art, but we both came to it from different places and we love it. So let's just talk about that. And also, Russ, just before the podcast started, we'd actually, for the years before that, our friendship group in London was quite a tight knit group of actors and musicians and different people. And a lot of them had started to buy prints and buy even people that didn't have huge salaries. They were investing two, three hundred pounds buying a print here and there. And I think there was something about trying to get people that just had nothing to do with art previously, feeling confident to even cross the threshold of a museum. Loads of our friends didn't realise museums in England were free to get into, a lot of them. You can actually go for free. I know it's not the same in every country, but trying to get it as part of their weekly schedule on the weekend to just pop into a museum, even if you just see one work and things like that. And I think that was also a bit of a driver for the show, wasn't it? Because in a sense, you said the word platform, but I don't even think we knew there could be a platform. I think it was more about it being a space for us just to be geeks and celebrate the artists we loved. But it really was the Michael Craig Martin interview. I think after that one, we suddenly realised how interesting it was because we also learn and gain so much from doing these interviews because you learn about other art movements, other artists you've never heard of before. And it's like a constant education. One of the interesting things is that I think from the beginning, you really stressed accessibility, you stressed inclusivity. You had a very wide range of guests. Some of them were major art world figures like Ralph Rugolf or the artist Larry Achimpong. But you also had people like Lena Dunham and Nick Rhodes and Maxwell. It's interesting. Was there sort of a deliberately broad range of guests? Was that part of the plan to the extent that you had a plan? Yeah, because our motto is art is for everyone. There's no hierarchy in talk art. We're not saying we have Jeff Koons one minute and then we have an emerging artist that no one's heard of the next minute who's just starting. We're not saying well, one is better than the other. We're saying we're all in this together. Art is for everyone. And we can have audiences that come in through Maxwell, through Lena Dunham, have never discovered 
talk art have really spoke about art before you're seeing a side of these people that they really get to talk about and they love it because they're, they're passionate about art and that brings them to the podcast yeah and also when we first started the show i think after the first season there was a number of friends of ours and artists and curators that we knew that had loads of resistance to the show and they were kind of like why are you doing this you shouldn't be having these people come on the show and talk about art what do they know about art and then when they actually heard the episodes they were like oh my god I was wrong because I think that they just didn't had assumptions that people who weren't hallowed in the art world could speak about art. And I think it has changed a lot and maybe opened up the art world for more people. And I think even the book that we wrote has done that. We get daily messages from people who are learning about art because we wrote the book just like we're talking, essentially. Talk to me about the book, which came out last year, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. I'll throw this question over to Robert. Oh, well, it ended up being a Sunday Times bestseller, which was amazing. But mm. doing that book was so terrifying because I think I felt like, why was I writing a book? Why was Russell, why are we doing this book? But in the end, it's been one of the best things we ever did. I think it's brought so many more people to the podcast and it's also introduced people to artists they've never heard of before. It was the sort of book that when we were younger, if we had discovered it would have been our Bible. It's something we wanted to put out there that was a reference point for so many things. All art is, is just a different way of receiving a story and allowing yourself to receive that story. And someone saying, you haven't got to like everything, giving you permission to go, you don't have to like anything, but something will affect you. Something will touch you and spend time with that and work out what that is. Because basically all this is, is storytelling and artists want you to know their story. So many People feel intimidated going into galleries because they think it's not for them, especially commercial galleries. They feel like they haven't got a budget. It's not for them. But what you've got to realise is you know, the best artists aren't making work just for people to put on their walls, put in a vault, go to museums. They want to tell a story. They've got a message. That's the reason. The words aren't enough. That's why they're making art. And they want you to see and listen and witness their stories. So just remember that artists, all artists want you to see their art fundamentally. So wherever it is, you have a right to go and see it because they want to connect to you. And also commercial galleries want you to visit and they're free to get into. So they might be small, they might seem like it's intimidating to go inside, but there's nothing more that they want than visitors. So they would love you to go and see their shows. Mm. Robert, I'm going to ask you without naming names a question, which is, I still find, even in my position as a global director of Art Basel, that a great many galleries are not particularly welcoming in terms of their architecture, in terms of the way that the staff receives you or rather doesn't receive you. Because I think obviously we understand from a business perspective, there's this kind of velvet rope approach where in a weird way, the colder the reception is when you're walking in, the better you're supposed to feel about being allowed to buy the work. It's interesting, Robert, because you're on both sides of this equation. You're both a collector and a gallerist. And I'm curious, what are the discussions, especially now in 2022, among your gallerist peers about how perhaps the approach needs to be changed? Galleries are always bemoaning the fact that more people don't come to visit, but they're not often particularly welcoming places. No, and I think, like you said, there's a whole power structure involved in elitism. So the elitism can actually help the gallery in a sense to elevate their prices to make it feel more special. And that's a power structure that I guess some galleries won't want to 
give up, but I feel like it's really outdated. I'm all for inclusivity. At the moment, if you look globally, there's a massive far right movement happening. Now, I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine said to me, I feel like we're living in the 1920s. I'm sure there's a war coming. And I just thought he was crazy. And now you look at what's happening in Russia and you look even in France with some of the far right politicians there, the stuff they're saying against inclusivity and also breaking down LGBT rights and all that kind of stuff. It's interesting because the art world can at times be a space that's totally not inclusive. I just think it's down to the individual, really. For example, we've moved to Margate. We opened a free gallery here. And instead of getting hundreds of visitors for each show in London, we're now getting up to like seven to 9,000 visitors per show, which might not sound like a lot, but it is a lot for a private gallery. And I feel like we're getting all kinds of groups coming in, like older age pensioners and kids with neurodiversity and learning difficulties and like all different kinds of audiences. We've only just begun our work here and I'm so passionate about continuing it and to get continuing the fight to be inclusive. And I think even the idea of going somewhere unexpected, like Margate, no one really expected this town to take off. And the Turner Contemporary has done such a great job to build a museum. And now Clary Wallace is the director. And I think it's going to become a real centre for international art, even more than it already has done. And I think, again, it just comes down to supporting the artist and their vision, rather than worrying too much about the collector and you know how much you can sell something for because that will actually take care of itself if you do what's right by the artist i think russell as someone who's a collector but not a gallerist how do you view this in the 15 plus years that you've been collecting or maybe mm. almost even 20 years that you've been collecting do you feel like galleries have become more welcoming places i feel yes definitely art is being more discussed now as something that can be for you I think the likes of Banksy is something that has opened the opportunities up that people have seen street art move into a gallery system, move into the auction system, and they can suddenly see this transference from the street into galleries as something that's for them. For me, I loved cartoons growing up. As soon as I discovered Roy Lichtenstein, Andy Warhol, Keith Haring, I was like, oh, there's cartoons in museums. I don't need to grow up. <laughs> I can still enjoy cartoons, but be an adult, parenthesis, and experience these artworks. Hopefully, people feel more emboldened to step over that threshold. That's the challenge of talk art, and that is the manifesto of talk art, is that that is for you. Do that. Go to a museum. Go to these galleries. Take your time and see as much as you can. But what Rob has said, the effect amongst our friends and peers has been amazing. All of our friends now are collectors. Everybody that we've sort of touched with talk art now follows artists, goes and sees their shows, amplifies their stuff on their social media, collects their work. I will walk around shows with my mum and she will have reference points for what we're looking at. Oh, I like this artist because that reminds me, that's that person you had on the podcast and they're friends with that artist. Oh yeah, I do know that. My mum is now collecting neurodiverse artists. My mum is collecting prints from counter tradition. My parents are collecting prints and they know what's going on? And that is such an amazing privilege, but also a pride that we both feel for talk art. We're enabling access to this world, as you were saying, that was behind a velvet rope and yeah. it isn't. It's for everyone. And that has been one of the joys of doing the podcast. And also we and don't book. take it lightly. We know it's a responsibility and we know that with that audience comes a huge pressure in a sense and responsibility to do what's right by the artists and the galleries and the whole ecosystem. But it's not like we need to become successful from the podcast. It was never the aim of 
doing a successful show. It's more about highlighting voices and platforming it. And I think as long as that doesn't get corrupted, then it's a great space to continue in. I think what we're pointing to, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in the past, the art world was thought of as a place that you have to have real pedigree to engage with. And people would go to highly curated architectural spaces and see highly curated exhibitions, which really had a clear sense of what the viewer was supposed to see in what order. And the sense was that you were supposed to stand in front of it with your hand on your chin, with this kind of classic contemplative gaze, which was something that we inherited from the Enlightenment period, when the bourgeoisie were trying to prove that they were more sophisticated both than the nobles and than the peasants. And that's kind of where this contemplative gaze, this notion that you shouldn't get too enthusiastic about art, but that rather you should communicate with it, comes from. And is it too optimistic to feel like we're coming out of that period? Well, I hope so. That's not our experience. We do get very excited, overly excited, where people have to tell us to calm down. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it's about. Give me an example of that. Have you actually ever been told to calm down about art? Yeah, I think people have been a bit like overwhelmed with how enthusiastic we are about an artist's work or a show. Or if you meet an artist and they're not used to people being like, oh my God, you're so brilliant. Oh my God, I'm such a fan. They're like, what? What are you talking about? You're right. It is this kind of bourgeois way of not getting overly excited and taking art in, but it's this hushed, reverential way of experiencing art, which it shouldn't be anymore. It should feel accessible at at any moment. And that's what the artist should strive for. I think fundamentally, the interior monologue, if you're excited and happy about it, then you should be able to express that in a way that is not disrupting the practice <laughs> of what you're experiencing. And also one really important rule, never touch the artworks. Oh God, yeah. I'm thinking big picture here. And, and what I'm thinking about is how historically the gatekeepers of the art world have been one type of person. And now in a sense with your work, it's kind of the fanboys taking over the gate. And I mean that in the best sense of the word, because to the extent that there have been criticisms of the show, it's been like, oh, they don't know, they didn't know who this person was, or they weren't aware of that artist or whatever. And I think there's this, again, as part of this kind of elitism of the art world, there's this kind of expectation of omniscience, which is absurd now. It would have been absurd 20 years ago, but especially now, with so many artists coming at us from so many different parts of the world. Yeah. I think I don't know that artist, or tell me more about that artist, or I know exactly. the name, but not the work. It's something we all need to be able to say exactly, without Mark. shame or guilt. How many times have you watched an art interview and they've come up with these references and you think, I don't know who that is. And you're looking at the people being interviewed or the people that are sat around and are all kind of nodding. And you think, you can't all know who that is. But no one is sitting forward and going, sorry, who is that? What is that artist movement? What is that abbreviation you just come up with? I don't understand what that is. So when we started talk art, I was adamant that if something come up that I didn't know what it was, I would ask what it was. And if something come up that I knew what it was, but I'm pretty sure my mum might not know what that is, can you just explain what that is? And from that has come, has flourished this kind of language where people feel pride in being able to explain their knowledge of going, can you tell me what that is? And people go, oh, I've never really had to break this down. Well, basically... Uh, this movement was the Cobra movement was this, and people can go into these references and it's exciting to pass on knowledge in that yeah, way I, and being given a platform I to do that. I remember being so embarrassed when you first did it in some of the first episodes. I was like, why are you doing this? Why would you question? Because it's so trained within many of us. Yeah. Just nod along and then have to go home and look it up. 
But you're shut out. But you're yeah, shut you out. Are. If you're watching yeah. that or listening to that and you don't know what it is, you're shut out instantly. You're like, but oh, it's this also, conversation it's also just really me. fake. It's not actually very authentic yeah. or real. And surely yeah. learning, if you don't know something, you shouldn't have to be embarrassed about it. You should just put your hand up, say yeah. you don't know it, and then you can learn. Exactly. And these people that are saying, oh, they didn't know this reference, didn't know that reference. It's, I don't care. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've got that judgment of me, this show isn't for you, obviously. I'm not catering just to you. No, we have listeners in 170 yeah. countries around the world. You're telling us we just cater into <laughs> no. one voice. No, we're there for everyone. So apologies if you think that <laughs> you know, it's crude that I don't know this or that. But the whole point is this is an art journey and I'm not supposed to know everything. Art is a family tree and there are so many bastardized children <laughs> that sprawl off everywhere with these estuaries going off that constantly are exposed and that is the joy of doing this podcast is that channel after channel after channel is opened up of exploration. Yeah. I think it's really wonderful that you use this as a way to normalize not knowing. Yes. Thank you. Know? you. That's what it is. Normalize not knowing what these art references are. Because for so long, we've been, like Rob said, made to feel, well, if you don't know this, then there's no... It's not actually, I... So you go to someone's house and the collector is playing this game and you're supposed to guess who all the artists are and you get it wrong and suddenly you feel like shame. you're an idiot and they're going to hand shame. you your coat, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, shame. I did a master's for a year at Christie's through University of Glasgow. The reason I did it was because John Slice was going to be my tutor. And literally when I started that course, it was just a year long. I had no clue about so much stuff from about... I don't know, 1890 until 1950. So I spent that whole year teaching myself. But even after that year, there's still so many things I don't know. I find it exciting. I don't find it a problem. I think it's really good to go and learn. And it's never too late to start learning either. I'm all for education at all kinds of ages, even if you are successful. Some really successful people we know go back and do a PhD or go back and do something because it's good to learn and to challenge yourself and think of new ideas. One of the interesting things that I think is coming now at a moment where people are acknowledging what a bad job the art world has done of validating the best artists of various periods because of their race, because of their sexual orientation, because of their gender, is that a lot of ways the contemporary artists, meaning the artists that are now entering the conversation, are often twice as old as any of us are, meaning 80 to 100. And I'm curious, as people who embrace the notion of not knowing and embrace the notion of discovery, how you see this shift in what's being validated and even looked at within the art world? Well, I guess it's just the gaps. I guess it's about seeing representation, seeing yourself on gallery walls, where the world is changing so quickly and there's so much happening that the importance of being able to walk into art and see yourself is more important than ever. And art is the quickest way to connect to the rest of the world, reading a book, listening to a song, watching a movie, visual arts tell you who the world is. And until you're represented on the gallery wall, it's easy to deny your existence. But as soon as you're up there, that exists. That is happening. That person is there. This experience is there. That authentic life being lived is right now. So you can't deny that. And that is why it's so important. I think Russell and I 
even though we're both incredibly privileged in the sense that we're white, we're male, we've both been to schools and had access to great support from our families emotionally and all kinds of things. So we're coming from a really privileged place. But because we're both gay and we both grew up in the kind of 1980s when it wasn't really accepted, I think we do have a solidarity, a kind of empathy for people who have different struggles to ours. And I think that's been a kind of subconscious decision that we made to interview all these different kinds of artists, even though their situations were so different to ours. But we were fascinated in them. We wanted to highlight their voices. And it was only after about a year of doing it, I think maybe when Rachel Felder interviewed us for the New York Times, that she actually asked the question, she's like, why is your show so diverse? And we were like, is it? We didn't even realise. So I think having been told that, you then sort of realise the responsibility you have to use what your skills are in order to help other people. And I think even in our business, we're trying to do that more now. Robert, you came from music, being a professional musician, into working in the art world. Russell, you're still very much an actor above all things, I suppose, especially in terms of income and that kind of thing. How would you compare these different domains? Acting, music, the visual arts, podcasting? Is podcasting a form of culture? Yeah. Because you're operating in different domains which have different mores, different ideas, different perspectives, different metabolisms in terms of the time of imagination to the time of production. Yeah, but it's all storytelling and it's all connecting human to human, it all feels like it all feeds into each other. We are taking up as much space as we want. <laughs> you know, at some point it's like when I grown up, it's like stay in your lane, stay in your lane within your lane. When you're an actor, if you do theatre work, that means that you are not going to do TV or film. If you do TV, that means you're not going to do film. If you do adverts, that means no one's going to ever touch you for TV and film. There's so much hierarchy within just the acting choices it used to be. And now actors are doing everything and they're having these sidelines and they're having these things. And art for me has been something that once I brought it into my life and put it out front and center alongside everything else I did, it just made everything else even richer, even more exciting. So yeah, I think this thing about staying in your lane is sort of moving away now. And I think people are encouraged. And what we're saying we talk about is encouraging people to switch lanes, to take up all that space and to embrace your interests. And I think that's what the pandemic showed us. So many people went, you know what, I've always wanted to try basket weaving, or I've always wanted to be a ceramicist. And they did it. They went out and did it. And people changed jobs. That is so incredible. I even know other podcasters that have started podcasts because they saw us doing ours. And I think if we can empower yeah. other people to believe in themselves and make a change and do something, then go for it. I had no idea I would ever be a broadcaster in this sense. I love it. And even talking to you today, I really enjoy talking. If you told me, honestly, I would never have thought we'd be doing this. I think sometimes the artists we meet will say they resist what came easiest to them. And then much later down the line, after they've built up loads of other skills, they suddenly realise actually mm. drawing was the thing they were always great at since they were a kid. That was and then that gift. goes on to change yeah. their career and change the world. Mm. I think if we could all somehow get the confidence just to be ourselves, then actually that's a major gift to the world. Because if you can go out there, be your happiest self, you're actually going to make a change that's helping others. I have to admit, I didn't listen to all of your podcasts. because 175 seasons, episodes. I, I did listen to it. Yeah. Um, Why not? Why not? <laughs> time. It's just time, Russell. You'll have to excuse me. I have to say the one you did with Wolfgang Tillmans, which was, if I remember correctly, towards the beginning of the pandemic, mm. both convinced me that it would be a great idea to do a podcast and almost made me scared to even enter the game. And it's mm. one that I would really encourage people to listen to. There was that one. And then one that struck me 
the one with Tracy Emin. Tracy has been such an important figure in terms of literally for both of you before you met, and she was the reason why you met. And now you're both in Margate as part of a movement, so to speak, that she's one of the spearheads of. And yet the interview that you have with Tracy feels like more of a struggle than some of the other ones do. And I'm curious what your experience as interviewers is. You expect it to go a certain way, but then it goes another way and how that's been. Because in the end, you're trying to have a conversation that feels somehow coherent or has a certain, and you have a pretty specific tone there. Yeah, I think it's interesting talking about Tracy's. We were both quite nervous to interview her because we knew her so well. And I think in that we'd done two interviews with her. In the first one, she was highly professional and walked us around White Cube and talked about her show. And the thing that I realised in that particular interview was that Tracy only wants to talk about where she is right now. And she doesn't want you to speak for her or to say that you know what she's doing or what she has done. She doesn't really want to talk about the past. She kind of wants to talk about the present, which means that she's evolved in that period of time to a new place. And that's what she wants to talk about. I think the second interview we did with her, she was much more um, relaxed with us in a way, even though she just recovered Mm -hmm. from cancer and we went around the Royal Academy together. But I think they are drastically different interviews, aren't they, Russ? There's a different energy that goes into them interviews and it feels a privilege to have been given that opportunity. And you just want to feel with every guest that they're not leaving the interview going, oh, that didn't feel good. 100% of the time or 99% of the time, I would say that people walk away from being interviewed in Talkart and going, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, And you want to do right by them, really. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this. Mm, It's been a fascinating discussion. Last questions to both of you. I'll start with Russell. Mm -hmm. Russell, What was the first artwork that you remember seeing and which artwork most recently moved you? So I remember being at junior school and there was a poster of Henri Rousseau's Tiger in a Tropical Storm or Surprised. And it's a rainforest and there's a tiger there and there's lightning strikes and the tiger's got his teeth bared. And is he ready to pounce or is he frightened? I remember looking at that and going like, that looks like a comic, but that's a work of art. And that blew my mind. So them works have really shown where my collection has gone. And then recently, I literally yesterday went to see Rachel Jones, who's an incredible emerging, I guess emerged or emerged British painter. And her show at the Chisenhow Gallery is phenomenal. Called Say Cheese is the title. There's lots of E's in the cheese. And it's amazing. Robert, same question to you. What was the first artwork you remember and which was the one that moved you the most recently? When I was 13, what actually got me into art was Frida Kahlo via Madonna, of all people, because Madonna was collecting Frida Kahlo's work. I saw the painting My Birth and it just resonated so strongly. And then I became obsessed with Frida Kahlo, which led me to every other decision I've done in my art career, I think, because I feel like Frida really paved the way for me to feel like I belonged in the art world. And most recently? Most recently, there's a project space artist run here in Margate called Quench. And there's an artist called Caroline Wong. And her drawings and paintings are totally extraordinary to the point where I'm trying to buy one right now. I'm really excited to see her because I feel like you're right at the beginning of something. And I hope we can interview her for Talk Art soon. Great. I think it's wonderful that both of you named artists who most listeners won't know about beforehand because so much of what you do is about exposing people and exposing yourselves to new experiences and to new artists. And on that note, I want to thank you very much for joining us, Russell, Robert. Thanks so much. And I look forward to listening to your future episodes. 
Cool. Thank Thanks, you so Mark. much, Mark. Yeah, loved it. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.